Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined again by Ben Gessling and Michael Rand of the Star Tribune. Thank you, Ben, for waving, starting off the podcast in our traditional fashion. This is uh, unlike, though, many podcasts, because we're going to be talking about a pretty heavy situation with running back Dalvin Cook that popped up this week. Although, as Ben will allude, it uh, didn't just pop up last week. It's just the lawsuit did. And we'll get into the situation involving him, the allegations against him, and all the facts surrounding the case that we know. And Ben, you and our Rochelle Olson were the ones who put the full story out there first and foremost. Why don't you tell us what we know about this situation right now? And we also heard from Dalvin Cook today. So why don't you set the table in terms of what we know about this situation? Yeah, so from the lawsuit that was filed in Dakota County, this was from an old girlfriend that had kind of an on-again, off-again, rocky relationship with Cook, uh, at least from what the lawsuit has described. Um, Basically, her claim is in the process of going there last November to... Uh, basically end it and pick up her things and and uh, just kind of get out of there and, and move on. Cook uh, assaulted her, leaving her with a concussion, um, cuts on her face, uh, cuts on the back of her head, and um, essentially wounding her badly enough that she felt like she couldn't go to work. She's a, a sergeant first class in the military, I think currently stationed in Italy, um, eventually went to the doctor for an exam, but claimed it was an ATV accident, not wanting to um, involve Cook or you know give the real reason for what happened, at least in her version of the events. Um, they had kind of reconciled at a couple of different points, including earlier this year. Um, I think there was a house involved in Fort Lauderdale. A lot of this is publicly available now for anyone who's curious to go see it in uh, Minnesota court records and it's anybody can go kind of read this part of it for themselves now but um they broke it off for good um this summer cook said today that they're no longer in contact she decided to file a lawsuit this week um basically looking for uh, a monetary settlement for what happened she did not go to the cops my understanding is that was her choice to not want to ruin his career by involving the police. And uh, that's an important distinction, at least as it relates to NFL policy, because um, in talking to the NFL today, they draw a distinct line between civil and criminal matters with relation to the commissioner's exempt list, which you may remember from seven years ago involving Adrian Peterson. That is the, the mechanism that the NFL typically uses for players who are the subject of criminal investigations or uh, criminal charges where those players are not on the field, but they're still being paid for game checks um, throughout the course of the season, allowing the league to kind of let the legal process play out without having players on the field. That is not in force here because it's a civil matter. Uh, the fact that she did not press charges, the fact that the police have not been involved uh, makes this a civil issue and makes it so that Cook is able to play. Now, we had, had found out about this and had been working on a story. Uh, and then shortly before we were going to publish it last night with um, 
details of the lawsuit and comments from Cook's attorneys uh, who have accused the, uh, the woman named Graceland Trimble of extortion, saying that she broke in. Uh, their version is that she broke in uh, having a garage door opener that she had had on hand, uh, broke into the house, immediately sprayed Cook with mace, and then held him at gunpoint for several hours, as well as several other associates. Both of them are claiming they have witnesses. She is claiming that Cook's cousin helped her bandage some of the wounds on her face and on her head. Um, Cook is claiming that witnesses will corroborate his version of the events. So his attorney released a statement shortly before our story was going to be published last night. His attorney, of course, knew this was coming because we'd been in contact, uh, released the statement to, uh, I think, just Adam Schefter from ESPN, probably several national reporters, first Adam Schefter uh, with their version of things before uh, our story was published a little bit later in the evening as we were kind of taking it through the, the editing process and reviewing it and, and vetting things as best as we could. So that's where it left us last night. Cook today uh, would not answer questions about it other than to say that he's the victim. And uh, I think said he's not worried about future discipline league said he's no longer in touch with Trimble and said he had not thought about filing a lawsuit, though his attorney, David Valentini, um, had insinuated that that was a possibility as of last night. So we'll see where that goes. But um, it's become a, a he said, she said. But at this point, we have a lawsuit from Trimble and a statement from Cook's attorney and comments from Cook claiming his innocence and that the facts will eventually prove um, that to be the case. So that's where we stand. Uh, it's a lot, but that's that's what we know at this point. Yeah, and, and forgive me, Ben, you mentioned some of this, but just to restate some key facts of the case this happened, this incident happened uh, allegedly a year ago. Yep. Um, uh, November 18th, 19th, 20th or so last year. And as you said, there are no criminal investigations ongoing. As far as we know, the, the parties involved at least haven't said that either have talked to the police. And I believe, Ben, you had asked Alvin about whether or not he was going to go to the police. And um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what his response was to that. But to I think he said nah to either police or a lawsuit. I mean, I think at one point to set up, that's a question for my legal team and my, my attorneys as well. And then as far as the Vikings are concerned, you had just brought up the important point of the commissioner's exemplus and how this isn't a spot where the league would use that. Uh, the NFL has come out and said there is no change in Dalvin's status, although they are monitoring the situation with Cook. Um, the Vikings let him practice today and they're going to let him play on Sunday. And this is going to be a situation seemingly unlike there are many differences and departures from the Deshaun Watson situation, but that's also one where that's primarily a civil case. This is fully a civil case. And that is one where he also wasn't put on the exemplus, but the team, it, as the optics of it or the team, the Texans didn't let Deshaun play. The Vikings are going to let uh, Dalvin Cook play. And as you said, it's a he said, she said. It would certainly happen to seem like the Vikings are not going to. Dalvin says he's innocent and the Vikings certainly aren't going to put him in a spot where he doesn't seem that way. Does that, does that seem like the situation? Yeah, I, I should add a couple things to this it, just to point out some of the exhibits in the lawsuit. She has several pictures in there uh, of wounds and pictures she took 
of herself and, and the extent of the wounds shortly afterwards. The, the Probably the most important thing in the lawsuit, as far as an exhibit goes, is a what appears to be, well, is allegedly an Instagram direct message exchange between Cook and Trimble, uh, where Cook says something to the effect of, of if you want to go to the police, I'll understand and accept the punishment. Uh, doesn't say specifically what for, but that is is in the court document as, as one of the records. So uh, that would seem to be the, the piece of this that probably speaks the loudest, I guess, from my vantage point. But um, it, it does, I think we get into a lot of the he said, she said, based on what the response from Cook's team has been. But that uh, exchange, if accurate, and, and the, the pictures appear to be the same as Cook's Instagram account, the, the blue check mark is there to verify it, all that stuff. Um, if that is, in fact, the case, that um, will probably be a fairly strong piece of this that, that her team will try to use uh, to make its case. Do you know at this point, because Rochelle, you and Rochelle obviously were the ones talking to the lawyers and attorneys on both sides of this. Do you know what is next? You said they both have witnesses that can corroborate their situations. Do you know at this point what is next in terms of the litigation process? Well, I think where this probably goes is a settlement. Um, the, the, the court documents suggest that a trial would be something like 12 months away. And they talk about mediation being possibly six months out to be completed in six months. So I, I think probably where this ends up, and this is me conjecturing more than knowing exactly what's going to happen, but uh, I, I think that's probably where we end up. The, the next thing that needs to happen just on a procedural level is Dalvin Cook needs to be served with the lawsuit papers, which has not happened yet, according to court documents, because his residence is inaccessible. I believe it is a gated residence. So I think that's been part of the problem why they've just had trouble getting him the papers. And um, I think he has 21 days to answer. So that piece of things is just on a procedural level, what needs to happen next. But uh, yeah, I, I think probably where this ends up and that's not unusual that we end up with a settlement with this, but I think that's probably where this goes. And, and I would assume that means he can continue his career unless more comes out, unless there's a criminal investigation that could perhaps follow this later on, which is not impossible. But if it's just a civil matter, I would assume that he probably reaches the settlement and everybody moves on with their lives, I would think. Mike Zimmer was asked about it today, and I believe he just said they kind of go on. I'm trying to find the, the verbatim quote here as I tap dance around. He said, yeah, Mike Zimmer, quote, honestly, I don't know that much about the situation. What I was told is the NFL, and this is a, what do you call it, a civil matter, and it is what it is. So I don't know that much about it, honestly. Um, so Mike, Wednesday morning, and this was obviously just, you know, less than 12 hours or no, just over 12 hours, obviously, after this all came out, um, said he didn't know much about it, Cook practiced and is going to play. And so, Ben, what are the Vikings, as far as NFL rules go, right? I, I think I set it up well with, with the um, – the commissioner's exemplus, like you talked about, it seems like they're within their right to do anything they want with him, but they're just going to play, play him and let it play out. 
Yeah, they, they are. I mean, they can, they can keep him on the field. There's nothing forcing them to take him off the field um, simply because that distinction between a civil and a criminal matter. Um, I've been in touch with Brian McCarthy from the league, and he said there's no change to his status. As of now, we're monitoring developments. We're going to continue to review it under the personal conduct policy, another fun terminology flashback from 2014. But as of now, there is no change. So as of now, it's all systems go for Dalvin Cook to play in Los Angeles this weekend, which he said he plans to do. So uh, barring a change in the status of the case, barring new information that would come out, uh, Cook is still able to play. So this would seem like something, too, that might not have any kind of resolution even toward the end of this season. Um, You know, Ben, you speculated about uh, a settlement if that were to come down the pike at some point, but if he's got 21 days to even just respond to it, we all know how long these things can drag out. And so I don't expect an answer relatively soon. And therefore he probably might end up just playing through um, until there is some kind of resolution to this, that the NFL can make its decision off of from there. Um, the Vikings have plenty more going on with their team right now. Uh, outside of the Dalvin Cook situation, there is or there are five players on the COVID list. Two more got placed on the list on Monday. There are nearly 30 people, players and coaches, who are going through intensified protocols at the team's headquarters. That means they're testing every day. They're wearing masks indoors. They're adhering to more strict social distancing policies inside the building. Uh, all of those things to mitigate the spread of COVID that has affected so far. We know three positive tests in Harrison Smith, Garrett Bradbury, and Dakota Dozier. And Mike Zimmer revealed this morning that one of those players was in the hospital as of Tuesday night due to breathing troubles related to COVID-19. Zimmer called it COVID pneumonia or something like that. And obviously we've heard about how pneumonia and things like that can set in uh, on an infected individual. Ben and I both heard that that player is Dakota Dozier uh, who has been hospitalized. Uh, Mike Zimmer said it himself when he called it a scary situation, um, but one that he had clarified that Dakota is stable or he didn't mention the player's name, but he said the player is stable condition Uh, And he said it was a scary condition. So it sounds like he's doing better, which is good, but it's just another thing for the Vikings. And Mike, I haven't heard from you yet, but um, this was supposed to be an odd numbered year where everything kind of went better for the Vikings as it had been under Mike Zimmer, but we're not really seeing that right now. No, it it was, but it also, you know, it it felt from the beginning of training camp, like it could also be one of those years for the Vikings. And, you know, again, we don't want to lump all of these things into the same category that the Dalvin cook situation is certainly far more serious than the offensive line, having ups and downs or Dakota Dozier being in the hospital, but it does speak to this kind of organizational, like when things go bad with this organization, it seems like it's one thing on top of the other. And then we just, you know, we've seen, you know, a couple things in the last 24 hours and the Dakota Dozier thing is very, very scary and very serious. Like you said, I mean, and then having all these players, in the protocols, having the enhanced, you know, awareness of it and getting retested. Um, it does kind of speak to how COVID, you know, even if we thought of 2020 as the COVID season with, you know, fans not being allowed in a lot of stadiums, at least not in full capacity, it's, it's certainly very much a part of what we're dealing with right now. And certainly what teams are dealing with right now. Yeah. Those enhanced protocols. It's not like last year where the NFL actually had, a list of intensified protocols that teams had to go into. And that meant like only virtual meetings. And it was a lot more strict. Um, this is a situ- situation where with vaccinated 
people in the building. Obviously, all coaches have to be, and only some players are. Um, they can pick and choose which ones are ID'd as close contacts, put those people in, in those separate protocols, and operate from there. Um, but the Vikings hope that the spread is done at this point. They can't possibly know until those 29 people get retested and until uh, some of these guys return and the spread stops. But from Thursday of last week to Monday of this week, uh, those five days, they had five different players put on the COVID list. And obviously Harrison Smith, Sunday morning at M&T Bank Stadium, uh, testing positive was one of those guys. He's not going to be able to return in time because he's unvaccinated. That's a 10-day minimum quarantine for unvaccinated positive cases. Uh, Dozier, Bradbury theoretically can return because they're, they're vaccinated, but you need to be symptom-free if Dozier's in the hospital. Uh, he's certainly not there at this point. Um, you said, Mike, feels like last year a little bit. Um, I talked to Andre Patterson, or we did, uh, at a press conference today, and Andre basically said just that when he talked about the intensive protocols they have to operate under entering Chargers week because um, he had said they're basically all getting tested, the, the people who were close contacts every day, uh, all the intensified mass stuff. It's just one more thing that uh, the team has to kind of go through to make sure everybody's safe. Um, with all that said, they need to find a way to beat Justin Herbert. They need to find a way to beat the Chargers on the road, go from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, and beat a really good offense. And this might be the most accurate quarterback, we've stated this before, that they've faced since Russell Wilson in week three, maybe, because they've gone through the Baker Mayfields, the Sam Darnolds. Um, and if we can finally just focus and talk about football for a few minutes, um, I'm not sure about their chances going into this one. We've mentioned it. No Harrison Smith, no Patrick Peterson still. Uh, Michael Pierce still not practicing as of Wednesday of this week. Anthony Barr wasn't out there, although he continues to manage that knee injury uh, as he plays through it. Um, so, Ben, a trip out to the West Coast to face the Chargers. If we could entertain a football conversation for a little bit, how are you feeling yeah, about we'll probably shift to that? How are you feeling about their? Because uh, you know that is what we got into the business to do, right? Talk about football. <laughs> what? What? Uh, what are you feeling about their chances going out and facing Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen? Austin Eckler and company. Well, it's, I mean, the chargers are sort of interesting because it seems like we've seen them kind of swing between these extremes this year when they've, they've looked great at times and they've looked not so hot a lot of times, which is probably somewhat what we've said with the Vikings too. The difference being that the chargers have come out on the right end of more of those games than the Vikings have at this point. This is one where I think, again, if you're going to have a shot, it's going to be winning a shootout. The Chargers have had a lot of trouble stopping the run. Some of that may be on purpose because Brandon Staley's defense, a lot of the, the central idea is we will let you run the ball, but we don't want to give up big plays downfield. We don't really have any desire to get beat with 25, 30-yard gains, but we'll give up five or six because we won't commit as many defenders to the run. We'll basically give up a gap in the run front to trade for a defender that can cover another zone in the passing game. So, I mean, that's, that's what we've seen. It's a Vic Bangio type defense. We've seen the Rams run it. The chargers obviously have, have gone to that as well. So you will be able to run the ball, I think against these guys, but it's probably going to come down at some point to, to Kirk cousins and, and his receivers or his tight ends or his fullbacks um, making some plays downfield. I, I think that's going to have to be a lot of it for them to stay in this game, especially given what they will face on offense with Austin Eckler, 
Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Justin Herbert calling the calling the shots on the whole thing. Some good tight ends that factor in the passing game as well. It's going to be tough to slow them down completely. So I think you're going to have to try to go win this one, scoring a lot of points and and uh, winning in a shootout. I can't let you slide on that shot, that, that underhanded shot uh, against Kirk Cousins, um, the the tight ends or fullbacks line. Hey, I mean, a lot of the big plays <laughs> have come from Tyler Conklin and CJ Hamm last couple of weeks. So as the offense evolves, you just got to watch what it's doing. And, you know, I'm, we're just here to cover what we see going on in front of us. And that's what we see is CJ Hamm and uh, Tyler Conklin becoming the big downfield targets. Yeah, Mike, five catches for Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen on Sunday. That's got to change uh, this Sunday, don't you think? It does, although when Ben said five and six-yard gains, I bet Kirk Cousins' ears perked up because those are uh, that's his bread and butter right there, baby. Um, It's on the ground, though, as well. I know, I know. The running game. I know, I know. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Ben's assessment is is spot on that it feels, you know, a little bit like – if we can compare it to another game where they had to go out West, it feels a little bit like that Arizona game where you kind of thought going in that it was going to be, can the offense score enough? And, you know, frankly, that was probably one of the better games they played this year had put themselves in position to win, you know, a with the lead in the fourth quarter before that evaporated and B with a, a makeable field goal that was, was missed. So it's not like the offense doesn't have it within them to make plays. It's just, you know, like Ben's written about, like you've written about Andrew and, and talked about, like, can, can they stay ahead of the sticks? You know, can they against a defense that might pre- present them with more opportunities to get into second and four, can they get out of those in, get out of that rut where they're not converting on third down, where they're getting a little predictable or stale on offense? And, you know, can they find the right times to, to take those bigger shots downfield? I mean, if you're talking about the offense as a whole this year, maybe you have some confidence that, but if you're just looking at the last couple of games, you're like, I don't really see it. Uh, so it, it's, it's going to come down to a kind of a matter of what version of this team we see this weekend. Yeah, and I think we might end up seeing the team that Mike Zimmer wants, which is the team that runs the ball, controls the clock, doesn't necessarily have to throw on second and 10, third and 10. Well, we know they don't throw on second and 10 too often. Um, But we do know that, as Ben said, this Chargers defense is one that gives up a lot of yards on the ground, and some of that might be by design. The Vikings are going to take that, I think. They're going to be pretty happy with that if that's the case because Dalvin Cook, this team is at its worst. This offense is at its worst when Dalvin Cook cannot get anything going. And Ben, you wrote for Monday morning about uh, just how many walls Dalvin ran into. I think he had that 66-yard run, the 15-yard run in that first quarter, and then it was just zero yards, negative one, zero, negative one, just running into a wall. The NFL next-gen chart was was great in terms of just showing almost what looks like you could see. You could draw an invisible line just across where about 75% of his carries just stopped, and that was just maybe a yard past the line of scrimmage. Um, yeah, he had 110 yards on 17 carries. Uh, 105 of those were on three. So the other 14 so, went for a total of five. That's like, Adrian, that's like Adrian Peterson days. Remember when it was just like feast, feast, famine, 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 feast. Famine, famine, feast, baby. And it was like the, the numbers looked good at the end of the day. And Adrian Peterson, obviously, is great running back. But there were a lot of those times where it was second and nine, second and 12, because he's trying to hit those home runs and they don't happen all the time. I don't yeah, think this was that as much. I think there were a lot of those runs where he was getting hit at or behind the line of scrimmage. I mean, you had a lot of those plays on Sunday where their linebackers, I, I thought the linebackers played awfully well, the Ravens linebackers. They they had a number of those where they had free runs through a gap. And the, some of that's their linebackers, some of that's them controlling the front without Brandon Williams. So that's giving those linebackers space to run. But 
Dalvin had a number of those where he had somebody in his face well behind the line of scrimmage, including the one where I think they tackled for an eight-yard loss that uh, put them in a, a pretty tough spot. I think that was in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I, I thought two weeks ago, I thought Ezra Cleveland played a particularly bad game against the Cowboys. This week, I thought it was Ole Udo who played a particularly bad game against the Ravens. And now Linval Joseph, familiar old face and friend, is, is the Chargers' nose tackle. It's weird to say they're about that. It's weird to say that they're not good at stopping the run when they've got Linval Joseph. But we, Ben, you just described how sometimes when you can wreck a game in the middle the way opponents can to the Vikings' interior line, that can make a secondary level linebackers, safeties, whatever, some pretty good run defenders if you're unable to get bodies in front of them um, with your guards. And so if, if the Vikings have to worry all day about Linval, maybe that changes the way the Chargers end up looking on defense. I think if anybody knows this Vikings offense – um, knows some of its personnel because Garrett was here when Linval was here, I think, for his last year. Um, yeah, it might be Linval. Maybe, maybe that changes things a little bit. Who knows? Um, but other than that, I think if the Vikings can establish their will, they can run the ball, they can mitigate a guy like Joey Bosa who can make life pretty difficult for passing games and Kirk Cousins. I like their chances. I do. I am curious, though, to see how uh, Bashab Breeland, Cameron Dantzler, Cam Bynum and Xavier Woods look against Justin Herbert because this is the most talented offense and certainly talented quarterback uh, in terms of arm talent, I should say, because we just saw Lamar Jackson uh, that we've seen in some time because, uh, Ben, I don't think we've seen Breland uh, or Dancer really get tested downfield all too much because Lamar Jackson was pretty inaccurate. Yeah, Lamar Jackson beat them in part because he kept getting chances to do it. I mean, they, they when that game's 17-3, or well, I guess it's 14-3 at the time, and you you get the interception, you have a chance to, to put that game in a pretty different spot before halftime. And, and they had some chances in the second half to do it as well. Um, yeah, they haven't faced a quarterback quite this talented as a pure passer probably since Joe Burrow, I guess, would probably be the last time. I mean, Kyler Murray certainly makes a lot of things happen, but it's more unorthodox, and then you had kind of the run of – of quarterbacks that either weren't very good or I suppose in the case of Russell Wilson were playing not with the, the supporting cast that they usually have. So yeah, it's been a while since, I mean, you'd probably say Burrow or Wilson somewhere in there is the, the best passer they've seen leading up to this. And you're going to get Herbert this week, presumably uh, if he's back from COVID, you get Aaron Rodgers the following week. Did we learn anything about, their depth, their depth on Sunday, because it's hard, right? It's hard to judge too much off of Cam Bynum's debut, how Dantzler played and all that, when the passes weren't always super accurate. I think Lamar Jackson could have thrown four or five picks in that game because yeah. um, I think Breland dropped one early. Um, there was another one I thought, too, that that's escaping me. But um, Somebody dropped. Yeah. Did did we learn anything? Did Woods no, drop big, one? Did who? Did Woods drop one? I'm trying to remember. He might have. He might have, but point being in that they had, some plays, it's a lot to <laughs> they had some opportunities. And I'm wondering um, from your guys' perspective, if we learned anything, Mike, did you learn anything about this patchwork secondary in Baltimore? Yeah, it's, I think you're right. It's hard to know, especially in a one game sample size. I mean, I think, um, I think Ben, I think you even wrote about this in your second day piece. I think Bynum actually looked pretty good for being thrown into that role it wasn't just the you know it wasn't just the nice interception where he you know made that read and actually was able to 
know, come up with that diving pick, but you know, he, he had double digit tackles. He seemed like he held up. Okay. And in terms of being in the right place and things like that. So that's gotta be encouraging for them. And obviously, you know, on the offensive side of the ball, um, the jolt they got in the return game um, is certainly something I want to see more of uh, more of that. So, you know, it probably helped uh, enhance their 2021 draft class a little bit, but I think we need to see a bigger body of work to know exactly what we're dealing with there. Yeah, they did finally get something from those rookies. Patrick Jones didn't play a whole lot, though, the third-round defensive end. He is the uh, second guy off the bench after the Daniil Hunter injury. They got Everson Griffin, DJ Wanham starting. They're going to continue to bring Kenny Willickis off the bench as that first guy. Uh, he's in his second year, former seventh-round pick out of Michigan State. Coaches seem to be pretty impressed with him, although Patrick Jones is a guy that they're clearly needing to bring along slowly. Another third-rounder with the same issue, Wyatt Davis. Um, when uh, Ole Udo went out for one play in Baltimore, they brought in Blake Brandle to be the backup guard. So that gives you a window into how coaches are viewing that interior O-line and that Wyatt Davis uh, is not even the first interior lineman off the bench. That is Blake Brandle, who's actually practiced tackle more often than guard uh, going into this season. So Wyatt Davis pretty far behind the eight ball at this point. I wouldn't expect to see him this season. Seems like they're going to just write this off as a redshirt year for him. Um, let's get to some Twitter questions here. You can always send them to us on Twitter. You can find those handles at startribune.com. You can also find our emails there where you can send those uh, questions via email. I got one from here from Gordon via DM. He wants to know I'm an avid listener to the podcast. My question is, what makes it the offense look so bad for most of the second quarter and second half? It appears the players are playing hard, but the uh, offensive brain trust isn't putting them in the right spots. Uh, he wants to know, is it Kubiak? and the coaching staff unable to adjust to opponents in game their defensive in game adjustments. Excuse me. Um, I think that's probably a fair characterization of some of the issues we're seeing, because when you look at this offense, they are starting off drives games very well. Their opening drives are scoring. It's been seven straight games. They've scored on the opening drive. We've talked about that. We've written stories about how their scripting process is going great. And then as soon as that 34 year old coordinator gets those training wheels taken off in games, that's when it's not going great. We're not seeing the adjustments in games in terms of the passing game. That's drying up pretty, uh, pretty quickly, as we saw in Baltimore after those two touchdown drives. Um, ben, it seems to be a fair characterization that it's the coaching staff not quite adjusting to things as well, or at least putting the players in those situations where they feel comfortable. Because if it's a play call that's not working, if it's not that, it seems to be the quarterback who's not feeling comfortable in certain spots or just something going wrong. Penalties, it's just one thing after another with this yeah. offense. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to know. I think sometimes with the play calls and Zimmer talks about, we, you know, we have some shots called, you could argue that saying we have three or four called, and then if we don't do it on first down, that we got to go run the ball on second down. is not an efficient way to live. It's hard to know completely though, how many times cousins is checking the ball down when he has somebody open. And, and we certainly talked about it. You pointed out in some of your film reviews that, there are times where he's got guys downfield, but there were also a couple on Sunday. And I think you highlighted one of them. And I think I got into a couple of them as well, that Baltimore ran blitzes that they show so late in the play clock that nobody adjusted the protection time to account for it. And they get a free runner coming at cousins and you're stuck at that point. So, so there are a lot of issues, whether it's cousins uh, being able to just let it rip, 
whether it's a play calling, whether it's setting protection, um, penalties, inefficient running game that allows you to have it be third and three instead of third and eight. I, I think there's a lot of things you can point to there. It's, it's hard to, as, as I wrote on Monday, it's gotten to the point, I think, where there are enough threads to the problem that untangling the whole thing is a lot more difficult because you can't just, I, I don't think you can just sit here at this point and say, it's this one thing, if they fix that, it's all going to be off the races. Yeah, I'd, I'd asked Adam Thielen on Monday, like, why? You know, just basically every, what every fan is asking us of like, why? Why is he only getting two catches for six yards in a game where the offense sputtered? And Adam kind of ran through a bunch of those factors, Ben, that you just talked about. He said the quarterback has got to read it right. The quarterback's got to have the right coverage to get you the ball. He said you got to get open. you got to have enough time for the play that was called. And he said we ran into every one of those factors that went wrong on Sunday in Baltimore. And that, it wasn't just Sunday, though. We've seen this over and over now where it's if it's not penalties, it's it's the check down. If it's not the check down, it's the pressure as he's throwing it downfield that leads to an inaccurate pass um, or it's just an off pass. We saw Kirk miss Jefferson deep not that long ago. Um, I can't remember if that was the Dallas camera before that, but uh, it's just one problem after another. And, and then that's kind of Mike, you and I talked on daily delivery about how that's kind of what makes it difficult, right? Because it's not just, Hey, let's just go out there and focus on this one thing. It's no, everybody needs to stop messing up at the critical points of the game. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the conclusion we came to also though, and you know, Ben talked about the coordinator and how it certainly doesn't just fall on Clint Kubiak, but it does feel like if things are going to get better, I mean, short of the offensive line gaining more consistency and, and, you know, giving them more of, of a chance to, to, you know, get the right, get in the right protection and, and get the, get those deep shots blocked up. It, it is going to call, it is going to come from the rhythm of the play calling and figuring out when is the right time to do this? When is the right time to do that? And, you know, we talked about the, you know, the, the decision to, to go with Clint Kubiak as the offensive coordinator at the beginning of the year. And from a, you know, from a certain standpoint, it made sense, right? It was the continuity. Even if you're not having the same exact person, it's the, it's, it's someone who was in the room last year with, with, with Kirk cousins, establishing at least some semblance of not ripping up this offense and trying something completely new all over again, when he and the Vikings have had, have had that throughout their, you know, last six or seven years. At the same time, as you think about it in retro, <clears throat> as you think about it in retrospect, it is surprising to trust someone so young and so inexperienced in that role in such a make or break season that in retrospect, and I'm not blaming this all on him, but it does seem like if there's a certain burden that's falling on him to try to figure this out, that's a lot to ask for someone who hasn't done this before. And we have talked about how the, the absence of Rick Dennison looms a little bit larger when he is maybe your most experienced play caller on staff outside of, well, actually, no, your most experienced play caller on the offensive staff left over after Gary leaves because Kennedy Palomalo has called plays, but I believe it's been since his days at USC. It's been a minute. So they don't have a quick adjustment on the staff. They don't have, hey, let's just, you know, put Dennison up in the booth, have him call some plays and, and see how it works out for a game. Um, they've, this is what they're with. This is kind of what they're stuck with. And I don't, at least speculatively, I don't see any kind of quick adjustment they can make uh, outside of calling Gary, you know, interrupting uh, uh, the Andy Griffith Sanford show. Sun. Yeah, thank you. There we go. I always forget this show. It was either Andy Griffith or Sanford. <laughs> <Sun>. <laughs> that was Mike Zimmer referencing. Or was it Clint telling us? It was Clint. Show. I think he's probably sitting at home right now watching the Andy Griffith show or Sanford Sons. Telling us what I, shows. I usually picture Gary's, uh, you know, cutting some hay, got some straw in his mouth. Thinking back to 
you know, time I worked with a pretty good quarterback by the name of John Elway. <laughs> pretty good running back. Name of, name of yeah, Terrell Davis. By the name of Terrell Davis. Um, <laughs> but uh, short of calling Gary, I don't, I don't think in trying to convince him to come out of retirement, I just don't see any kind of quick solution. So what they do, they need to fall on, on Clint being able to find a rhythm. And, and I thought I want to read more from what Adam had said on Monday, because it does shed light on that. Um, the players aren't coming out and pointing fingers at, at coaching, but I think you can kind of read between the lines on some of the things they're saying. And, and Adam said, um, what are we really good at? What do we need to do as an offense to move the ball, to score points, to win games? And then he says, that's what our ultimate goal is. He talks about all the players and positions that are, that are working toward that goal. And then he ends it by saying, um, I think we all have the mindset of, hey, I've got to be better personally so that when things do get figured out, I'm ready to go. And when that ball does come, I'm ready to make a play. I just, there's so much of this that, that reads of, we don't have it figured out of what we're good at. We don't have it figured out of, of what we can lean on when, when we need a play and we need to, um, in clutch time, make things happen. There doesn't seem to be that confidence from players. And I think that's problematic. Uh, even as in certain moments, two minute drills, they do have it. They do have a way of, you know, scoring like they did at the end of that Ravens game, but they just don't have that confidence of going through it throughout the games. And that seems to be a problem bigger than don't commit penalties or don't, you know, do the little, the little things wrong. So I don't know. There seems to be a confidence issue, Mike, in this offense, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Confidence issue. And it just seems like an identity issue. Like you said, like it's, they've invested so much on in the on the passing side of the ball and they just haven't ever really fully committed to that as at least a co-star in their offensive identity they still want to be a run a run first team and i just think that's that's not working for them right now they have to at certain point they have to say look as good as dalvin cook is um if, if we've got guys getting blown off the ball and we're certainly you know, getting in second and nine second and ten all the time you got to move the pocket and just start throwing the ball a lot more and, and take your chances that way. Um, we got a question here from Scott and I guess, Ben, I want to get your reaction on this because he's asked this before. I just don't remember if we've answered it on the podcast, but he talks about how uh, this season, the focus has rightly been on the coaching staff, but the GM conversation is just as important. If the Wilfs clean house, do the, do they have anyone they lean on outside the management team for guidance? Basically, if they're going to commit to a full rebuild GM search, coaching search, do the Wilfs have anybody they would lean on in such a GM search? Because we've often talked on the podcast about should Rick Spielman be the one who's allowed to pick the next head coach? He's the one who hired Mike Zimmer. Um, and I, I think that was his one and only coaching search that he has been on by himself. Um, Ben, to your knowledge, because I don't think I have any indication because Kevin Warren would have been the guy, right? Like when he was here, yep. you would think maybe they turned to him. You've reported and talked with their new COO. Um, do you have any sense that he's the kind of guy that they could turn to in such a situation? Well, it would be a little different just in the sense that he comes from a, I mean, he's a baseball guy, but he comes from a baseball operations background. So in other words, he has worked in a front office in the competitive on-field capacity, or at least overseeing that department, obviously. He hasn't played Major League Baseball. He was a pitcher in college, but that's neither here nor there. He has been closer to the operation of trying to win games than Kevin Warren had been in his time with the Vikings. So the fact he has that experience, maybe he can transfer over and would say, I can get involved in this process. But the fact that he has not been in the NFL – 
I think still leaves you in a little bit of a tough spot. I, I think that has always been one of the things that Rick Spielman has probably used to his advantage in the sense that the Wilts are not in Minnesota every day. They are not owners that have a ton of football experience, so to speak. And that's probably true of most owners. Most owners are not coming from having made their money in football uh, when they get into this process of owning an NFL team. But I, I do think Rick Spielman has probably benefited from the fact that the Wilts kind of let him run things on a day-to-day basis. They, they trust him to kind of be their man on the ground in Minnesota. And if you are going to get rid of him, then you have to find somebody else that you trust at that level. And I don't quite know who that would be. I, I'm sure they would use a search firm and they'd probably go try to figure it out that way. Andrew Miller, I would assume, would be involved in that process as well. But um, it is an open question, I think, of how they go about it if this kind of foundation they've set up for the last eight years with Spielman and Zimmer is all of a sudden gone and you have to rebuild that from scratch. Yeah, very um, topical, certainly, for the situation here as the Viking season seems to be tilting on the brink. Uh, three and five headed toward Los Angeles and then Green Bay. Uh, if things go south. I was going to say, I've got one here, too, from uh, from Jeff, who emailed it in. Kind of related to this, I guess, in the sense that of what happened to Kirk Cousins. And he asks, uh, Cousins' play drives me crazy. Would you please explain his contract this year and next year? Can they rework the deal so the team can have some breathing room to get other badly needed players? Whose fault is his contract situation? So, I mean, this kind of factors in there. all of this as well <laughs> with, with the decisions they're going to have to make. Briefly, I'll go over the financial stuff briefly and we can, we can get into the Cousins thing at large. But he's got a $45 million cap hit for next year, all guaranteed at this point. Um, $10 million the last $10 million of his signing bonus hits the cap, as does a $35 million base salary. All of that is guaranteed. If the Vikings were to trade him, however, the only thing that would stay on the cap is the $10 million signing bonus proration. The extra money would leave to go to another team that probably would redo his deal. Could the Vikings redo it? Yes. But that means adding more years to the deal. I don't think you're going to go get Cousins to say, I'm going to give back some of this money and uh, give you a, a, a goodwill adjustment, so to speak, and just out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to give you some money back. I don't think that's going to happen. So you're looking at adding more years to the deal and committing to him for a longer period of time. As for whose fault it is, well, I suppose it's the Vikings having needed a quarterback in the first place that you needed to go out and pay on the open market. And Cousins, we've talked about many times, has used an unusual contract structure to his advantage. It's been, I don't need seven year deals. I don't need to know that I'm going to make $160 million. If it, if I play the whole contract, I will take the three year deals and rework them and, and kind of go a couple of years at a time. So that's where we are at this point. But um, other thoughts on the cousins thing, we can maybe get into that for just a second here. Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, I think that if they don't make the playoffs, this year he will get traded in the offseason. I think he's a good enough quarterback that he would have value in, in a trade. I don't know what they would get for him exactly, but someone in need of a quarterback for at least one year would probably be willing to to make that to make that move. Um, I think they've probably seen enough here to know that this isn't like especially with the way this team is structured right now, that they're kind of on the back half of this window. It doesn't really make sense to 
either keep him on a, on a one on, on that last expensive year or extend him. And as to whose fault it is, it's kind of the fault of timing, right? I mean, the, 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 the extension that he got, the first extension he got was after they made the playoffs and won a playoff game. Like, what are you going to do? Go into his walk here after he's just done that. I mean, maybe you can say what's that. And they need a cap space. Right. So if they're going to keep this thing going, that made a certain amount of sense at the time saying it doesn't is a little bit of hindsight. Um, but it, it does look bad in, in retrospect because it just hasn't worked out since that last playoff game. And then they used that cap space and then Rick Spielman used that cap space to tag Anthony Harris at a position that Mike Zimmer had just got done saying wasn't really that important to his defense in terms of allocating money. Um, That was quite the turn after that 2019 season, um, that combine into free agency. Um, But yeah, that that set the table for where we're at now and set the table for what has been. Ben, you did the math on wins and losses since then. It's it's not great. I can't remember what it is, but... um, Since the, the Saints game or since the Miracle since the snow, since the 2019 playoff win, um, uh, they, I believe are 10 and 14 or 10 and 15. If you would count the 49ers game. Since sure. Then. Yep. yep. So. so it's, it's been a rough go at it since then. And that, uh, decision to extend Kirk cousins came right after that. Well, the, uh, the last thing on that, the, the thing that does make it difficult with cousins is when you get the short-term deals, you don't have space to to stash the big money. You have to pay him at the level that every other quarterback is being paid at, which is $25, 30000000 million a year. But you don't have the ability to stuff a bunch of it in a signing bonus that you stretch out for five years. If you're stretching it out for three, you don't have a lot of wiggle room to manipulate the cap number in a way that fits you the rest of your books. So the fact that he does it that way does make it a little more difficult for the Vikings in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you could do the whole void year thing, but yeah, they're not, sure. they don't, they don't typically do that because as you've pointed out for years, they don't typically, typically don't put themselves into that kind of cap purgatory. Yeah. I mean, the saints did it with breeze. They put the voidable years in there, but then you are guaranteed to have dead money and a dead money at that position is not cheap. So you have these big bills for somebody who's not on your roster. It, it gets to be a dangerous game to do it that way, but yeah, you, they could. And maybe that's what they do. And maybe they, they go and say, we're going to add, a couple of voidable years and we convert some of this into a signing bonus, but then you're banking on the cap going up in the future as all that new TV money hits and you hope all the revenue comes back. And, and I think it probably will. I think that's probably a fairly safe assumption, but they've already pushed a lot of bills into next year. So if you continue that game, it at some point is going to bite you. All right, let's wrap it up with the chicken finger statement of the week. Michael or Mike, I should say not Michael. Mike had to, uh, dip out quick, but so he unfortunately won't be here for this part of it, but uh, chicken fingers has receipts and he wants to hold them up to us. He says before the season, we each picked our candidates to exceed expectations slash disappoint halfway through the season. Let's review our choices. Uh, I have to take his word on this. This is a surprise to me. I have to, I have to take his word on this on who we pick. Cause I don't remember. And I didn't go back and double check, but he wrote it down. Obviously for us. matters to him more than it does to us. <laughs> he, he says he chose uh, Tyler Conklin to exceed expectations and Daniel Hunter to uh, disappoint. He says, I said, uh, Everson Griffin would exceed expectations. How about that? And Justin Jefferson would disappoint. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't really happen yet. 
Um, he says, Ben Gessling says, uh, all the number, he says, you said all the number three wide receiver candidates would exceed expectations. And he also says, you said the entire secondary would disappoint. I have a hard time believing that's exactly what you said. Um, yeah, I don't think it's exactly what I said. <laughs> but, I don't know. <laughs> I was running KJ Oz. I mean, if we're all taking you're? victory laps, yeah. KJ Oz, we're all caught that. That's not cash. And then he says, Ramball, uh, Mike said, D.D. Westbrook would exceed, while Harrison Smith would disappoint. Um, Chicken Fingers then follows up with comments on this. He says, first, Gessling is disqualified for not following the rules. Pick one person, Ben. One, you're a cheater. Second, <laughs> second oh, now he's going to pick one. Yeah. Second, yeah, I'm, I'm on the same extra plan. I'm just playing <laughs> K.J. Osborne for everything. Second, Chicken Finger says, I'm obviously winning with his picks of Conklin and Hunter. I don't know about that. Hunter just got hurt and he was not disappointing. Yeah, the six sacks were definitely disappointing. Take your victory <laughs> lap, though. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and Conklin has been catching five yard outs uh, for the entire season. Um, but he finishes up by saying, Secondly, I'm obviously winning. You can buy out the bet now by paying me 1000 each, or you can hold tight and pay me 2000 each at the end of the season. Your choice. <laughs> I mean, we're going to lose a taco bet, so I'm a, I'll, I'll worry about that one and whatever monopoly money he wants. We'll figure that out later. Uh, well, Ben, I got to say, you yeah, you were pretty damn close. If you if you can turn in your number three wide receiver candidates into KJ Osborne's exceeding expectations, because he absolutely has. And the entire secondary kind of has disappointed. Like, I don't know. I mean, it hasn't been great. So I would submit that it takes a higher level of skill to say that everybody's going to be bad <laughs> and it's best to just say one person. So I would, I would say I went farther out of the limb. So <laughs> fingers, you can, uh, you can let us know what you think, but I, in some ways, I think, uh, I, I did it at a higher degree of difficulty than right. the rest of you guys. I'm, I'm like the Simone Biles of this podcast. That's all right. That's right. You took on more, uh, burden by having to, by having four people in an entire yeah. position group failing yeah, five, probably right. Five. Yeah, I a lot of nickel. <laughs> all right well that'll be it for this episode of the access vikings podcast check us out from la sofi stadium on sunday after the vikings chargers game maybe you should get off the podcast